Well, Luke chapter 7, verse 36 through 50, is the text before us this morning. And here we have a little episode in the life of Christ that says a lot to not only the church today, but to our world as well. And it says here in God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled a larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy word to us this morning. Well, I want to talk to you about something this morning, uh, a, a topic which no one thinks will apply to them. Uh, none of you came to church this morning thinking, well, I'm self-righteous. Um, nobody thinks they're self-righteous, do you? I kind of pulled one over on you in the confession of sin. I made you confess audibly that we're all self-righteous, and we confess that sin uh, together. Self-righteousness is something that uh, I believe affects all of us, uh, and uh, it's very difficult for us to see it in ourselves, but it has broadly affected not only the church, sadly enough, but it's rife in our world today, self-righteous spirit. I want us to see what self-righteousness is, and especially within this uh, account of Simon the Pharisee and this sinner woman and Jesus, to see what are some of the dangers of self-righteousness. And my goal is for us to come out of it with the same goal that Jesus had, for us to see our great need for Jesus and rest in him and his finished work on the cross all the more. Well, what is self-righteousness? 
Well, the Bible has a lot to say about self-righteousness, actually. And uh, I'm just going to pull out a number of verses here real quickly and read them and kind of show you how the Bible defines self-righteousness. In Romans 10, when Paul is talking about the Jews who have rejected Jesus, he says they, have, they are seeking to establish their own righteousness. They're rejecting the righteousness provided by Christ. They're seeking to establish their own righteousness. In other words, they're trying to establish right standing with God through them, their own efforts. Luke 10, 29, uh, right before Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, um, the man who is asking the question of Jesus, he asks Jesus a question in order to justify himself. And that's another way of saying self-righteousness. Uh, he's, he's being self-righteous. He's, he's trying to justify himself. He's trying to convince himself that he is just, that he is right, that he is good. And in Luke 18, uh, before Jesus tells the parable of the publican and the Pharisee who are in the temple praying, both are in there praying, Luke tells us why Jesus tells this parable. Uh, he told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So these people didn't think of themselves as unrighteous. They thought they had it all together. They were trusting in their own righteousness. They thought God could look at their lives and God would approve. Jesus is trying to show them that they were mistaken in that assumption. In Philippians 3, Paul talks about himself and his credentials before he became a Christian and, and he was talking about how great he was, how righteous he was. And he he talks about it in these terms. He, he talks about having confidence in his flesh. He's got confidence in his own strength, in his own abilities. He's confident in his own record, in his own righteousness. Proverbs, give a little Old Testament in there. Proverbs 29 asks this question. Who can say, I have cleansed my heart. Or should I make the stress like this? I have cleansed my heart. I'm pure from my sin. Who can say that? Who can say that? I have cleansed my heart. But isn't that what we try to do? We try to improve ourselves. We, we, we try to establish our own righteousness. We, we're trying to cleanse ourselves. We're trying to get rid of the, the wrong and, and do what's right on our own. We're trying to merit God's favor. That's self-righteousness. We're trying to do it ourselves. We want to cleanse our own heart. It is the effort to improve your righteousness on your own to the point where you get a sense of self-satisfaction. Let me read that again. Self-righteousness is the effort 
to improve your righteousness on your own to the point where you get a sense of self-satisfaction. You think you've done enough to merit God's favor, God's approval. The problem is with, with that is that the self-righteous may be able to achieve satisfaction with themselves. They may think, well, I'm doing pretty good. However, they're fooling themselves that God is satisfied with them. They have reached a level of righteousness that they think makes them favorable with God, but that's not God's assessment of our righteousness. Isaiah says of our righteousness that it is like filthy rags. And the Hebrew word there is actually uh, menstrual rag. That's our righteousness. I know that's not a pleasant thought, but that's the point that Isaiah was making there. The only way that God can be satisfied with you is by Him graciously pardoning you, taking away your uncleanness, your sin, your unrighteousness. And the only way that He can graciously pardon you is by you turning from your sins, including all your sinful self-efforts at improvement, and put your trust in His righteousness and pardon through Jesus. You need... Not your own self-efforts, not your own improvement, not your own good deeds. What you need is the perfect righteousness of Jesus' life credited to you freely by God. And you need His forgiveness, which He secured by dying for your sins on the cross. You can't do it yourself. You cannot get God's approval through your own morality, through your own self-efforts. You cannot establish your own righteousness before God and say, I got it, God. I've done it, and you owe me. That will never happen. What you need It's a cleansed new heart. And Jesus is the only one that can clean your heart. Well, self-righteousness is hard to see. And it's difficult to eradicate. Because even once we do come to the Lord as Christians, I mean, mean, who who would deny? The church is full of self-righteous people. The church is full of self-righteous people. We forget that we're sinners. And in need of Christ, we... We, we go to Christ and we, we get forgiveness and then we behave as if it was all our own doing. And that makes us self-righteous. William S. Plummer was a, a, a great theologian in the uh, 1800s, mid-1800s, and he says this, Nothing in human nature seems to be more obstinate or more difficult to eradicate than a self-righteous spirit. Without the grace of Christ going before, no man ever sought or desired a new heart or a gracious pardon. 
left to themselves, men will live in sin, die in sin, and lie down in eternal sorrow rather than renounce their own goodness and abandon their self-righteous hopes. We are naturally prideful and we think we, we got this and we can be good. And that's why it's so difficult for us. It's, we're naturally prideful. We're naturally self-righteous. Well, we have before us an example of this self-righteousness that I'm talking about here, this self-righteous spirit in the person of Simon. And we also have one in this account who experiences God's forgiveness and salvation in the sinful woman. Well, allow me to set the scene. Let's dive into the, to what's going on here in the text. We have seen earlier in Luke's gospel how Jesus was criticized for eating with so-called sinners such as tax collectors and prostitutes. But there are numerous accounts in the gospels of Jesus eating with Pharisees as well. Why did he eat with tax collectors and, and uh, prostitutes? Because he said uh, the sick are the ones who need a doctor. Uh, not, I've come to call the unrighteous, not the righteous to repentance. But the same is true of the Pharisee, of the self-righteous Pharisee. Jesus cares about them as well. And we see that here in this passage. He goes and eats with his Pharisee because he cares about the unrighteous, even when the unrighteous think that they are righteous, like Simon does. Well, Jesus ate with his, these Pharisees, and, and, and we read here of a formal dinner hosted by this man named Simon. Now, there are at least nine different Simons in the Bible. Um, Simon Peter, of course, Simon the Zealot, uh, Simon, who was also a disciple, Simon the half-brother of Jesus, Simon the leper, Simon the tanner, Simon Magus, Simon of Cyrene, and Judas Iscariot's father was named Simon. This Simon isn't any of those Simons. This is a completely different Simon, and this is the only place that he appears in Scripture, so don't confuse him with any of the others. Well, these dinners, this dinner that he hosted was typical of the day. They were social events for the entire community, not just for the invited guests. Only the invited guests ate the meal, but anyone was welcome to come and sit along the walls or look in the windows and doors and listen to the table conversation. Often these homes had courtyards and maybe the meal was out, out in the courtyard and people had access to that and they were welcomed to come and, and listen to the conversation. Now, the Jews of the first century didn't use tables and chairs such as we do. Rather, they would recline on their left elbow on pillows spread around uh, very short horseshoe-shaped tables. And they would have their feet away from the table. Now, this is how this woman, who, how she comes into the dinner, she would have been one of the, those in the community who, were coming to encounter Jesus uh, and she would have had access to Jesus' feet because he's sitting with his feet away from the table. But this woman would not have been welcomed at this dinner. 
certainly not invited into the house of a Pharisee. You'll notice the shock communicated in the text in verse 37. Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. In other words, she was a prostitute. So here we had this very self-righteous Pharisee who was very careful to follow all the rules and the laws and even added rules and laws to make himself look even better. And here's this prostitute, this woman of the city. She was a sinner, and Jesus later says about her that she was a big sinner. She had sinned a lot. And when she learns that he's there, it's shocking. She comes in. And then the fact that her presence, you know, that's enough to shake up the room. But then she starts weeping. And then she goes even further. She unbinds her hair, which was not what Jewish women did. That was taboo. And she starts cleaning Jesus' feet and with her tears and her hair. And, and she anoints him with this oil. It was quite an awkward scene, as you could imagine. And then we have Simon's reaction. And we could talk a lot about the woman, and, and, uh, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus in today on Simon because it seems to be the center of the story that we're hearing here. Simon is appalled at what he sees, and all of his actions reveal to us the dangers of self-righteousness. And I've given you an outline. There's four points I want to bring to you today. And the first one is this. The self-righteous believe they are superior to others. Well, you see, Simon, he thinks he's superior to this woman, obviously. And, and maybe in some respects he is. She was a big sinner, as I said before. She was a, a prostitute. She, she was not only a prostitute, but she was enough of a notorious prostitute that everybody knew that she was a prostitute. Simon says, if, you know, if Jesus was a prophet, he would know that this woman was a prostitute. One would ask the question, how does Simon know she's a prostitute? I don't know. Maybe she was dressed like a prostitute. But either way, he looks down on her, which was easy to do. She had lived a life of sin and shame. So he has this attitude towards the woman that he's better than her and that she doesn't belong here and she shouldn't be even anywhere in the vicinity of this dinner party. So morally, he has it over the woman. But he also finds himself or acts superior to Jesus. He's got a superior attitude towards Jesus. He thinks he's better than Jesus. And more importantly, he thinks he's more knowledgeable than Jesus. He thinks he knows better than Jesus does. A, he thinks he knows this woman. Oh, I know she's a sinner. But the fact of the matter that this woman has already encountered Jesus. And she wasn't a sinner anymore. And that's why she was there. She had been forgiven. She had been freed from that life. And she showed up there to show her great love and appreciation to Jesus, who had taken away that sin 
and cleansed her heart, gave her a new heart and, and, a, and a new life. And she's so overwhelmed by it. She, she weeps enough tears of joy and gratitude and that she can actually wash Jesus' feet with her tears. I'm not a crier at all. I r- rarely cry. Maybe that's, I've got a hard heart, I think. But, but to be able to cry enough that you can actually wash someone's feet. She was overcome with emotion. So Simon thinks he knows the woman better than Jesus does. But Jesus knows this woman. He knows her heart. He knows everything about her. And Simon doesn't even realize that. And Simon also thinks he knows Jesus accurately. Now the text doesn't tell us what motivated Simon to invite Jesus to come and dine with him. Perhaps he was curious about Jesus and wanted to check him out closely to see if Jesus was all that the people were saying about him. The crowds were saying, this is the prophet, not just a prophet, but this is the prophet that was prophesied by Moses in Deuteronomy 18 where God promises, I'm going to raise up another prophet just like you, Moses, and he's gonna, I'm going to put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to the people all that I command him. And Jesus is certainly the fulfillment of that. The people were right. He is that promised prophet. He was the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. But notice what Simon thinks in verse 39 when the woman begins to wash Jesus' feet. Uh, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. See, all those people who said Jesus was a prophet, that Jesus was the prophet, Well, they're obviously wrong because he's letting this woman touch him. Well, the funny thing is, it doesn't say that Simon said these things. Simon thought these things. And then the text tells us that Jesus answered his thoughts. See, not only did Jesus know this woman in her heart, He knew Simon in his heart. He knew exactly what Simon was thinking. Jesus knows everything. This woman, he knows Simon. He knows what everyone needs. He knows what this woman needs. He knew what Simon needed. He knows what you need. He is a prophet. He knows you better than you think you do. And he's loving both of them in this moment. He's going to tell Simon a story, a little parable, that's meant to show him himself. Jesus is trying to show him his true heart. And I don't know that Simon actually gets it. Well, do you think you know better than Jesus? You might not say it, But if you are self-righteous, your actions will show it. You know, by just thinking that, you know, when you, you know, if you were asked that question, you know, if if you appeared in heaven and, and, uh, you know, you died and you go to heaven and, and, and they ask you, why should I let you in to heaven, what would you say? Well, I've done this and I've been a good person and I've, you know, well, that's, That's self-righteousness. You're holding up what I've done, my works, and that's not going to fly. 
that's not going to get you into heaven. And even after being a Christian, you can act self-righteous by not trusting fully in what Jesus has done for you. You know, we many Christians, self-included, we feel guilty. We carry around guilt because we're not what we should be. We, you know, recognize that we fall a little short here and there and, and we're trying very hard, trying hard to clean ourselves up, to get better, to do better. Well, you're just being self-righteous. You're trying to establish your own righteousness instead of going to Christ for forgiveness and cleansing and renewal. Ralph Erskine was a great preacher a long time ago. He said, uh, legal obedience, self-righteousness, has the evil of blasphemy in it because it reproaches the righteousness of Christ as if it were not sufficient, as if his atonement were not perfect, as if his satisfaction were not full, as if his obedience were not perfect, unless it be patched up with the rags of man's own righteousness. The only way to be saved, the only way to be forgiven, is through the gracious pardon of Jesus. He did it all. He died on the cross to make atonement for your sin. He satisfied the justice that was on your head for your sins at the cross. He did it fully. And as well, he fully obeyed the law his entire life, every second of his life in our place. So his righteousness is credited to those who put their trust in Jesus. And when that is credited to you, you are acceptable to Jesus, to God, the Father. Not for anything you've done. Completely what Jesus has done. And when you begin to think, well, God doesn't like me anymore. You're being self-righteous. You're saying that that sacrifice for sin, that atonement that Jesus made, is not quite good enough. I've got to do something on my own. I've got to do better in order for God to accept me. Let me tell you, if, if, if you have Jesus, you've got it all. That's all you need. Now, if you have your faith and trust in Jesus, yes, your life should reflect that. You should bear fruit. But the answer is not just to try to bear fruit. It's to put your roots down into Jesus. An apple tree just can't decide, hey, I'm going to really try hard to produce some apples. No, it keeps its roots going down and getting nourishment from the Lord. Well, from the ground, but from, you know what I'm saying. We need to get, abide in Christ and that fruit will be produced. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul asked the Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? See, they were boasting. They were, they were 
working hard and they were thinking, hey, we've got it all together. We're doing great. But they've forgotten that it's all a free gift. When you forget it's a free gift, what do you start doing? Well, I'm doing pretty good. And then you start looking down on everybody else that's not doing so good. And that's where self-righteous people in the church come from. They've forgotten that they were the objects of God's mercy and grace. That the only reason they have good standing with the Lord is not what they've ever done. It's only what Jesus has done. Well, the second thing, which I'm going to just give you these last three because we're running out of time here. The righteousness do not see their own impoverished state. And this gets us to the, really to the root of what we need to do in response. He tells this parable. There's two debtors. One owes 500 denarii, the other 50. A denarii was a day's wage for a blue-collar worker. So you think one guy owes a month's salary, a month and a half salary. The other guy owes a year and a half salary. So they're big debts. And the key is verse 42. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of them both. When they could not pay. Now, in the Greek, that's a, that's, there's nothing wrong with that translation. It's just hard to put into English words the little nuance that's in the Greek. The, 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 one of the verbs in the Greek is, is really the verb for to have or to hold and, and the, the phrase that, that communicates that they didn't have the money to pay means they did not possess it. it, it they had it. They didn't, it wasn't just they you know, couldn't get there to pay. They did not have it to pay. It was impossible for them to pay. They were both impoverished. And it didn't matter if you owed 50 or 500. You didn't have it to pay it. And that's what Jesus is trying to get Simon to see. Yes, this woman, she's a 500 denarii sinner. She couldn't pay the debt that she owed. You are a $50, 50 denarii sinner, but you still don't have the currency with which to pay it. Your righteousness, your self-righteousness, will not pay that debt. It just has to be canceled through Christ. And that's what we need to see and always remember. It's not our works. It's not our paying back the debt. It's just that he canceled the debt through his gracious act of redemption in Christ. Receive it. Embrace it by faith. Recognize what, what, what you are as sinner and recognize that you need a Savior and run to him. A lot of the people who uh, comment on this think, that, you know, when you, when you take the four Gospels and you try to harmonize them, uh, some of the commentators said this, this would, would fit, this, this account of this woman would fit soon after this statement of Jesus. And one wonders, did this woman hear these words? These words from Matthew 11? And, and that's what caused her to come to the Lord? Where Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
See, her, her burden was lifted. Not because she had cleaned up her act or that she had started to, on a path of self-improvement. She just came to Jesus with her burden and he took it away. He canceled her debt. And she responded in love for the Lord. And that's what you see. She's expressing her love. Simon, on the other hand, in his self-righteousness, had no love for the Lord. I would say he wasn't even in the story, the 50 denarii guy. I would say he's not even in the story at all because he has not been forgiven at all. He, he did not show any love for Jesus. When you grasp that you've been forgiven and cleansed and it's all been a free gift from God, then your heart should be full of love for the Lord. Is your heart full of love for the Lord? Do you love the Lord? If you've ever encountered His forgiveness, His grace and mercy, you can't help but love the Lord. And when your love grows cold, like it sometimes does, just remember what Jesus has done for you. Remember that He's canceled your debt. And it's not because you're a good person that you're acceptable. But if you persist in that self-righteous attitude... Like Simon, point four, you will not experience forgiveness and salvation. Well, Jesus is graciously exposing us this morning. And I want you to see, like I said before, the beginning, Jesus loves both these people perfectly. He obviously showed love to the woman, and she accepted the love and his forgiveness and restoration but he's there at Simon's house trying to make a point to him. He's graciously trying to help Simon see. And the story is sad because he turns to the woman and says, your sins are forgiven. And all the other people at the table say, well, who, can, who is this that forgives sins? And then the last thing, he says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. There's nothing that we hear about Simon to think that he doesn't persist in his self-righteousness. And he, is, he does not hear those gracious words. You are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It's sad. I hope we see Simon in heaven one day. I hope he saw his need and saw his bankruptcy, his impoverishment before the Lord. And I hope we all see it as well and continue to just come to Jesus. Jesus said, He who comes to me, I don't care if you are a prostitute or a holy man, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Let's come to the Lord. Let's come to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you again for your word that exposes us, but graciously exposes us, Lord, because it drives us to Jesus. And I pray that all would come to Jesus today and experience His grace and mercy and forgiveness that You so graciously have bestowed upon those who put their life in Your hands. Trust in You, turning from sin. Lord, we pray that we would revisit our confession of sin and we would confess our self-righteousness and hypocrisy and that you would forgive us and grant us to live by faith in Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. In his name we pray. Amen.